Yikes, I walked up to the front and everybody got quiet, sobered. I'm delighted for the privilege and opportunity to be in your company again. I'm deeply grateful to God for the opportunities that you and particularly your elders and your pastoral staff give me to bring the ministry of the Word on regular occasions and as part of the shared ministry to which God has called us in this city and in this country and in this world. It's a deep privilege to me. And as was mentioned this evening, we're hosting a gathering. Uh, We've called it Friends of Ambrose. Uh, We've invited um, alums and graduates of Ambrose University in its earlier iterations and in its current iteration here in the greater Toronto area to join us for coffee, refreshments, and conversation. And if you're interested in what it means to be a Christian university in an increasingly secular society, you're welcome to come as well if that topic or theme interests you. You can become a friend of Ambrose on the slightest provocation, and we share coffee together. So please come if you'd like. The text for the sermon this morning is the words that are found in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 13, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 4. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to this text, please. Or if you wish, in the Pew Bible in front of you, you'll find a Bible just like this in the Pew rack in front of you. You can turn to page in that copy, in that translation, page 894. You'll find the text, and it is important that you have the text in front of you, for ultimately what we do is we exposit this text with indeed the prayer that the Lord of glory, that Christ himself would speak to us through his word. So turn with me to the text, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Give ear, for this is God's word. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Thus far, God's word. Let us pray. God of all grace, grant us, I pray, this grace, that through your word and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would illumine our minds, rekindle our hearts, and strengthen our wills. Grant us this grace, we pray, For we ask it in the name of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now before I go very far, I need to register a complaint. Once I do this, I'll feel better. It will be therapeutic. And the ministry of the word will be more fruitful. For those of you who are looking at the NIV translation, the Pew Bible, you'll see that the words on Cyprus are inserted in bold print between verse 3 and verse 4. These two words were inserted by the translators because they didn't think you were smart enough to know that from there they would go to Cyprus, which it says in the very next verse. There's a side of me that wants to say, duh, I can see that. I do not need to be told the in Cyprus. But actually what is more troubling to me is that I don't think verse 3 and verse 4 should be separated in that way. That you cannot understand this text unless you see the powerful interplay between verse 3, 
sent on their way by the Antiochian church, and verse 4, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. That the whole genius of the text is actually divided, broken up by doing this there. That's off my chest. Now you know. And we can actually read verses 1 to 4 as a unit. This text of Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 4, has interested me for many years. I'm intrigued by a number of things that are testified to in the text, including what I just referenced, the intriguing interplay between the work of the church, that is the work of the people of God, their participation in God's purposes, and the work of the Spirit. How do these two sync together? But in actual fact also, I'm intrigued by this text because something noteworthy happens that in a sense changes everything for the purposes of the church and for the purposes of the mission of God as it is testified to in the book of Acts. In many respects, this chapter, or pardon me, these verses should not be read in isolation from the rest of the book of Acts. For you see, here in these verses, something is testified to, something happens that changes. There's an inflection, there's a movement, there's a paradigm shift. Something happens that alters the tone, the direction of the way in which the church is participating in the mission of God. And what I'm intrigued by is that the church in Antioch essentially asks this question. What on earth is the Spirit doing? And we see they're responding very intentionally to the Spirit. And then how can we get on board with what the Spirit is doing? What is noteworthy is, as I said, there's an inflection point. There's a change point here in Acts chapter 13. For you see, up until chapter 12, essentially the focal point, the center, the fountain, you might say, the epicenter of global mission was Jerusalem. All of the missionaries up until chapter 12, all of the missionaries who were commissioned by the church to proclaim the gospel were sent from Jerusalem. And that made sense. Jerusalem was the center, the hub. That's where the church was first established. That's where the day of Pentecost happened. So naturally, you would expect that missionaries are going to be sent out from Jerusalem to Samaria to the other most ends of the earth, as indeed Jesus himself anticipates in, in Acts chapter 1. You would expect that Jerusalem would be the epicenter of global mission, and anybody sent on global witness would go from Jerusalem. But here we see in the book of Acts, chapter 13, that indeed now the Antiochian church is taking the lead. They're doing something that up till then the Jerusalem church had done. And what they are doing is now commissioning Paul and Barnabas for the work to, Paul, to which Paul and Barnabas were called. And this now becomes, Antioch becomes essentially the new epicenter of global mission. And what they've done is see something that the Jerusalem church had yet to see. They would not see until Acts chapter 15 that God was calling Paul and Barnabas to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And indeed, verse 5, they still go to the synagogues, but ultimately Paul and Barnabas know that as they go to Asia Minor, they're leaving the safe shores, they're going to Asia Minor, they're going ultimately to proclaim the gospel to the Gentile world. And I'm intrigued by this because I don't think the Jerusalem church could have seen that this needed to happen. Eventually, they would be persuaded back in Jerusalem that the Gentiles can become Christians without first becoming Jews. Did you hear me? That the Gentiles, that's most of us in this room, in case you're wondering, could become Christians without first becoming Jews. The church in Jerusalem did not see that yet. The church in Antioch did. Very, very cool. And in the kingdom that is yet to come, when you go there, I'm assuming you're all going to be there, 
It may not happen right away, but at some point, you'll be sitting down for an appropriate espresso. That's the, that's the beverage of heaven. You'll be sitting down with an espresso. When you'll meet somebody from the Antiochian congregation, and you should say to them, thank you, because I'm here because you had the vision that people like me, like myself, a Gentile, that I could become a Christian without first becoming a Jew. And Antioch then became the new. It was Jerusalem. Then Antioch became the new epicenter of global mission. But as you read Acts 13, you know that by the end of the book of Acts, now Jerusalem is in the backdrop. Now Antioch is actually in the rearview mirror as well. By the end of the book of Acts, there's a new epicenter of global mission. And Paul begins to speak about this quite early on. By the time of Acts 19, for example, he's already saying to the Ephesian believers that he's going back to Jerusalem, but only as a stepping stone to ultimately getting to Rome. And the book of Acts ends with Rome as the new epicenter of global mission. Paul goes there anticipating that from Rome, the gospel is going to be preached to Spain. And indeed, I'm convinced that he writes the letter to the Roman church, his most important letter. He writes it to the Roman church because he knows that now they are going to be a congregation made up of both Jews and Gentiles, the new epicenter of global mission. And indeed, for the next millennium, Rome becomes the place from which the vast majority of Christian missionaries are sent. You know from my surname that I'm of British descent. And I'm grateful to Gregory I, who sent the very first missionaries, to, the very first missionaries were sent from Rome to the British Isles. And that indeed my ancestors, Anglo-Saxon, whatever they happen to be, their, the gospel witness that came to them came from Rome. And I'm deeply grateful for that, naturally so. But... That's not the last major shift from Jerusalem to Antioch to Rome. By the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, Rome itself is now in the rearview mirror. And in those centuries, especially the 17th and 18th century, the vast majority of Christian missionaries were being sent from what we now know of as the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, and Portugal. That is, the vast majority of evangelism in the, global world, in the world globally was being led by missionaries that were sent from, often, tragically perhaps, not like we would like it to be, they went on the military and economic might of Spain and Portugal. But be that as it may, the missionaries of the, those centuries were primarily sent from those countries. What we now know of is Spain and Portugal. By the 19th century, we have another major shift. In the 19th century, the vast majority of Christian missionaries were being sent globally from where? From the British, Scotland too, just so you know. Now, not just England. We may have Scottish people here who might want to get a little defensive. So indeed, it's England and Scotland. But very good answer. I love it. She knew. They came from England and Scotland. When you think of the great missionaries of the 19th century, who are you thinking of? Hudson Taylor or David Livingston. And where are they coming from? They're coming from the British Isles. The vast majority of missionaries, the vast majority of missionary stories and heroes were coming from the British Isles. When you come to the 20th century, there's another major shift that happens. And in the 20th century, and the Christian and Missionary Alliance, the denomination with which this denomination, this church is affiliated, by the late 19th century, established here in North America, primarily as a missionary sending denomination, it became, it, 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 I mean, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, the Alliance Church, is quintessentially a 20th century denomination with its word missionary right in its title, the vast majority of Christian missionaries in the 20th centuries came from this continent, from the United States and Canada. And indeed, my parents 
went as missionaries in the 1950s to Ecuador. They were very much part of that movement. My wife and I went as missionaries with the Christian and Missionary Alliance to the Philippines in the 1980s. The vast majority of Christian missionaries in that century, the 20th century, came from this continent. And when you think of missionary heroes, who do you think of? Robert Jaffrey. We have an Alliance church in this city named after Robert Jaffrey. And Jim Elliott, who inspired my parents to go to Ecuador. But my wife and I, even in the 1980s, we knew the times they are changing, to quote the great poet, who did I just quote? Oh, my people. Bob Dylan. You know, just, just saying. If you're thinking Shakespeare, surely it was Shakespeare. No, Bob Dylan. The times they are changing. He wrote that tune in 1964. And indeed, the times were and are changing. My wife and I in the Philippines in the 1980s, we, we recognized that indeed the times they are changing. And as we are now well into the 21st century, I think it's imperative that we, using the book of Acts 13, 1 to 4, ask this question, what on earth is the Spirit doing in our time? And what implications might it have for a congregation like First Alliance Church, for a denomination such as this church is a part of, for a university such as the one in which I give leadership, and for us, each one of us individually, we are asking, we must ask the question, what on earth is God doing? And how then are we being called to participate in that? And what I want to suggest to you is that there are three, at least three, maybe there are more, but at least three very significant changes that are happening in the life and witness of the mission of, the mission of God in the world, each of which, in my estimation, well, it's not just my estimation, many of us are recognizing Whoa, there are some significant things afoot here. The Spirit is up to something new in the 21st century, and it behooves us to see it, recognize it, affirm it, and then ask the question, well then, what implications does this have for us? Three significant changes. First of all, as you might suspect, I've gone from Jerusalem to Antioch to Rome to the Iberian Peninsula to England, Scotland, the British Isles, to the United States and Canada, now the epicenter of global mission is shifting yet again. In this century, the vast majority of Christian missionaries functioning globally will no longer so much be sent from this continent and from this country as from countries of the global south. In the 21st century, it's going to be China, India, Korea. It already is. It's going to be the southern cone. By the southern cone, we mean Brazil, Argentina, and Chile. It was fascinating to me. A year ago tomorrow, I attend what is called the Global Leadership Team that is the leadership of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Uh, uh, globally, here we meet here in Toronto. I get to sit in on those meetings. Last year in that meeting, Michelle and Murray Dirksen, who are the regional directors for the Christian and Missionary Alliance in Canada, in, in Latin America, they told about their recent meeting with the leaders of the church in Chile and how they felt called to play a key role in what God was doing in Venezuela. And even then, we knew something was afoot in Venezuela. This country's falling apart. We didn't know how bad it would be a year later. But I think how I was deeply moved as they talked about the sense of call of the Chilean church, global southern cone, for the church in Venezuela. No surprise. It should be no surprise to us that indeed these churches are now taking the lead in ways that now the Canadian church is as much as anything playing a support role, you might say, in that. Before I came to Ambrose University, I was privileged to be pardoned. I was in and out of Hanoi, Vietnam, 
uh, typically three, sometimes four times a year. I was part of a team of people. I was coordinating these various agencies. They were getting a theological seminary, the Hanoi Bible College, established. It had actually been there before, but closed in 1952 by Ho Chi Minh. And now several of us had been working over many years. And eventually the Hanoi Bible College was established, in, re-established, I should say, in 2012. And I've been informed there were 92 students in that college this last year, each of which reflect the emerging generation of Vietnamese leadership who want to give leadership to the church and who want to do pioneer evangelism both in their country and beyond. But the question is this. In Vietnam, there are, it is, a, it, is, it is said, there are 15 what are typically referred to as unreached people groups. That is, highland tribes, and by unreached we mean they don't have a significant Christian presence among them. There isn't a faith community among them. So in a sense, they still be eager to proclaim the gospel amongst these people so that they would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus and that a church would be established there. And my question is this. If there are 15 unreached people groups in Vietnam, in the highlands, in the mountains, who's going to reach them? Will it be pioneer evangelists from Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the U.S.? Potentially, but just saying, they don't speak Vietnamese. And as a rule, they also don't have, can't get a religious visa to Vietnam. That is just the... the and at the same time, I'm privileged to meet with an emerging generation of Vietnamese leader who maybe don't speak the highland languages yet, but they speak the lowland language, Vietnamese. They don't need a visa to get into the country. And for what it's worth, they can probably live on about $10,000 a year. So when you think about it, who's likely going to do that work? Which is why, for me, it was so uh, rich, it was so, so, so generative for me to be working behind the scenes and establishing a theological college that would equip and empower those young people to do the very thing that my parents had done but now they're going to take the lead on. Do you see the significant change I'm talking about? So that whenever we talk about the language of we need to reach the unreached people groups of the world, I don't disagree for a moment. I just want to ask the question, yes, but how? And what role will the Canadian church have? Now, it may well be that one of you will feel a sense of call to be a pioneer evangelist in church planting in a difficult region of the world. I don't doubt that possibility for a moment. But as a rule... The changing paradigm or the changing shift, the epicenter of global mission, suggests that the vast majority of missionaries in this century are going to come from China, Korea, Vietnam, India, the Southern Cone. I could say more. You get my point. Secondly, while in Vietnam, spending the day working to get this theological college and seminary started there in Hanoi, I also had the privilege, one by one, we started to meet together. As I said, I'm going there three or four times a year. And I met business people, expatriates from Australia, New Zealand, Europe, Australia, I mean Canada, United States, people of deep, profound faith who were there in Vietnam to do business. They were doing business to the glory of God. And one day at the church hotel, I walked down from the church hotel to the Joma coffee shop. And I always, that's where I begin my day. Some of you begin with prayer, that's very good. I begin my day with coffee. Each of us has our own issues. I walked down from the, from the church hotel on Church Street next to the Roman Catholic Cathedral. I walked down to Joma Coffee Shop. Joma Coffee Shop is owned by Jonathan Blair and his wife. He comes from Abbotsford. He's there to do business to the glory of God. 
he notes that indeed they have 20 employees and on any, any given day they touch 400 lives just through the business, let alone through the customers. That is just through their employees. And he has no doubt that his work is indeed work that has as much kingdom value and significance as my work as a theological educator and as the work of any church planter and evangelist. What that testified to for me was this. As I met these business people, including Jonathan Blair, I came to see the following, that there's an emerging partnership in global mission today that maybe was there in the distant past, but now is emerging, where those of us called into pastoral office, ministry, church planting, leadership, theologians like myself, and business people, those called into the production of goods and services, both locally and globally. When I was growing up, if you loved Jesus, like a lot, you would be a missionary. You'd be a missionary. If you love Jesus, but not quite that much, well, then you would be a pastor. And, and you'd stay here in North America. And if you loved, and if you loved Jesus, but not that much, well, then you'd go into business, make enough money to support the people that are going to do, as my father would say, the Lord's work. So who's doing the Lord's work? You either need to support those doing the Lord's work, or you need to do it. And ideally, if you really love Jesus, you'll do it far, far away. Um, and... Uh, and uh, for <laughs> when, I was a young, when I was a young person, we thought the, that the farthest you could go was Outer Mongolia. What I didn't realize was that Outer Mongolia is actually closer to Canada than Mongolia. But I didn't, you know, I didn't look at the map. It just sounded like Outer Mongolia was very, very far away. But business in itself was perceived to be of no significant kingdom value. Do you get my drift? That is, if you're called into business, that's secular work. It's not kingdom work. Three years ago, I'm privileged to speak at Urbana, the great missions conference. In fact, Andrew and Tim and several of you were at that conference three and a half years ago. I spoke to the business track, 1,500 young people, many of them in MBA programs, all of them feeling called into business. I was asked to speak to the theological and spiritual foundations of business, and I thought, Urbana, you're doing the right thing because what's emerging is a partnership between those of us called into pastoral and theological leadership like myself and those called into business. And at Ambrose University, we have a business program and we have a theology and ministry program. And I, I love it when Mark Jones, who's the regional director, I mentioned Michelle Dirksen, Michelle and Murray Dirksen from Latin America. Mark Jones is the Canadian regional director for Southeast Asia. And when he comes to our campus, I like to tease him. When he comes down the hall, I say, when you get to the prayer chapel, are you going to go right to the theology and ministry faculty and students? Because you want to know who's feeling called to international religious work or are you going to turn left to the business program? Because, well, he says, I'm going to do both eventually. Because when he's on campus, he gets it. That we are now seeing an emerging partnership such that those of you that are called into business, and I only began with business, those of you called into business, education, and the arts, you are doing kingdom work. That is the education program at Ambrose University that equips people to teach in the public schools of this country are doing work as kingdom significant as anything else that we are doing within our university. And we have a full-fledged theological seminary. I, I, I pause there hoping for an amen, but I just you know, work with me, people. I heard it earlier in the song, so I didn't think I would have to kind of prompt you now. That is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God happens not Sunday morning when we gather, but Monday morning when the people of God disperse, when they scatter to the schools, to the businesses, to their homes where they are raising children, to the pharmacies and hospitals. That is, wherever God has taken you. Every time I preach, in fact, I urge preachers to think this way. When you preach on Sunday morning, imagine who's there and where will they be tomorrow. 
you are equipping and empowering them for that work. And what's happening is not just locally here in Toronto or in Canada, but what's happening globally is increasingly we are seeing that those of us who are called into religious work and ministry are colleagues, partners together. The board of trustees of Ambrose University is made up primarily of business executives and leaders. They are my colleagues. They support me. I support them. We work together for the flourishing of this institution. It's not so much that they're the lower level life and I'm the upper level life. Perish the thought. I can't believe I said that. I'm going to get struck by lightning in a moment here. No, we are colleagues together in this work. And if God is calling you into business, education, and the arts, God has called you into kingdom service. Embrace it. See it perceive what it means, and then recognize both locally and globally that this emerging partnership has profound implications for what it means to be the church in our day. And then thirdly, we actually need to ask very particularly what this all means for Canada, and in particular to observe the following. When I was growing up as a missionary kid in Ecuador in South America, we would come home every five years, later it changed to four, to what was then called furlough. Eventually, they called it home assignment. But in those days, it was called furlough. My parents and our family would come home to Canada for a year of reconnection with this congregation and with many other congregations of the denomination here in Ontario and Canada. My mother grew up in Belleville, Ontario. And so typically, that's where we spent that year. We would come back to Belleville. And while we were in Belleville, we would worship at what was then called the Alliance Tabernacle. I still flinch at this. It's a very suspect theology of the church to call it a tabernacle, but it is what it is. It's part of my youth, so I deal with it. And if you don't like it, that's, it's past tense. The Alliance Tabernacle. The Alliance Tabernacle, now that congregation in Belleville, the Alliance Church no longer worships in that building. They sold that building, and they moved to the outskirts of Belleville, and now they are the Quinty Alliance Church. When they sold that building, they sold it, and it is now a mosque, an Islamic study center. If you come to Calgary and come to visit Ambrose University and you take the light rail transit from downtown Calgary out to our campus, you get off at the 69th Street stop. It's an underground stop. The train goes above ground and then underground and above ground and underground, but the last stop is an underground stop. The last building you see before you go underground to the 69th Street stop to get off to come visit our campus is a mosque. When I was an undergraduate university student in the 1970s, I know that shocked you. You probably thought I was going to say the 1990s. But the 1970s. (laughs) I knew there was a mosque somewhere in Canada, but we didn't know where. I would not have known where it was. I would not have said, is there a mosque in Canada? I would say, I think so, but I don't know where it is. Now, of course, the times, they have changed. We live in a country that is deeply pluralist, religiously plural. The city of Calgary, where I live, has many mosques and Hindu temples and Sikh temples. Little Owen Sound, I'm preaching there a year ago, on the way to the Owen Sound Alliance Church, Little Owen Sound has an Islamic study and learning center. I think, wow, the times they are changing. Canada now looks very different than it did a generation ago. I spoke at a mission conference a year and a half ago here in Ontario at Mohawk College in Hamilton, And the theme song of that mission conference was, To the Regions Beyond We Must Go. It's a hymn written by A.B. Simpson. Part of the reason why we don't sing it anymore is is because it is unsingable. But apart from that, 
one of the reasons why we might not want to sing it anymore is because it was very much part of the 19th century paradigm that assumed that we must go to the regions beyond, ideally, what? Mongolia, outer Mongolia. That's as far as you can go. Apparently not. But anyways, my point is, the assumption was that missions is about leaving here and going there. But could it be that this is changing fundamentally if we are sent to the nations, if the nations are coming to us? When I was a young person visiting the church there in Belleville, Ontario, we would regularly pray that God would send missionaries to Saudi Arabia. It never happened. Saudi Arabia is one of the most difficult countries to send any kind of a religious voice, gospel presence to. It was Saudi money that bought that building. Those are primarily Saudis who have come to that building. Could it be that now God is saying, you prayed for the nations to receive you, now I'm asking you to receive the nations. You prayed originally that God would send people to proclaim the gospel there, I'm bringing those people here. I'm in the parking lot of the church, of, of the hotel where I'm staying yesterday afternoon. I get out of my car to go into the hotel. A man stops me. He and his family can't get their car started. I go help them get their car started. They've got booster cables. The whole, it's a very Canadian thing, booster cables. And we sign up these booster cables, but they're talking to each other in a language that is as foreign to me. I've never, I think I can know most languages. I can at least, I don't know the language, but I know where it's coming from. So after we got his car started, I asked him, where are you from? What's the language you're speaking? It comes from Eritrea. You're from Eritrea. You live where? We live in Waterloo. You've lived there for how long? Well, we've lived there many years. And I'm realizing he's as Canadian as I am. And he's a Muslim Eritrean. And I realized that these are now my neighbors. There was a day in which the Christian presence in Canada was a privileged presence. We assumed it was a Christian country. And the question I want to ask now is, could it be that the times are so changing that as the nations of the world come to Canada, it fundamentally changes what it means to be the church in Canada. That as we engage the mission of God, yes, we still will equip and empower people to work internationally. Some of them will work in religious work and ministry. Some of them will work in supporting the churches of the global south, such as the church in Chile for the work to which they have called. Some of them will go internationally in business, in education, in the arts, that is, they will have other vocations by which they will enter in and be the light and salt that God has called them to be in this country or another country, ideally coffee shops. That's now, for me, that's the highest possible calling. And then missionary, and then pastor. Barista is the highest coffee shop. Whatever it is that God is calling you to do, thank you. Let it go, Gordon. These people aren't into coffee as much as you are. They'll think you're addicted if I don't let that one go momentarily. That is, that will still happen. But what is not to miss not to be missed is what's happening right in this neighborhood, right here in Scarborough, right here in the GTA, right here in Ontario, as we ask the question, how is God calling us to participate in the question, what on earth is the Spirit doing? And that takes me back to Acts 13, 1 to 4. Notice what happens in this text. We read that the elders of the church in Antioch were together in prayer and fasting. And clearly what they were doing was... Paul and Barnabas already knew their calling. That is, Paul had made this point more than once already, that his encounter on the Damascus Road was not just a conversion, but it was a calling. He regularly testified that he was called to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. So here he is. What's he doing here in Antioch if he already knows this? What strikes me is this, that Paul could not go except without the blessing of the church. Paul could not go without the blessing of the church in Antioch. 
It intrigues me a little bit, just as an aside, and if I get a chance to chat with Paul about this in the kingdom that is yet to come, I'll take my two minutes. This is, everybody gets two minutes with Paul, so this would be my two minutes. Why didn't you go to Jerusalem to get that blessing? Why did you go to Antioch? I don't think he would have got it. He went to Antioch because they saw, they lifted up, they saw the new thing that God was doing, the new wind of the Spirit of God. He went to Antioch and received that blessing. But also, he submitted his own vision to that congregation. And then we read, of course, that the Spirit said to them, set aside Paul and Barnabas to the work to which I've already called them. He had all, they had already called them. And they equipped and empowered them to do their work. But what is not to be missed is verse 4. I love even the way it's phrased. Sent on their way, almost in a sense, carried by the Spirit. That as we ask the question, individually, I need to ask it for myself, together as a faith community, as a denomination, and be assured, we ask this question often as a Christian university, what on earth is the Spirit doing, and in what ways are we being called to participate in God's kingdom purposes now under the direction, guidance, and the, and the way in which the Spirit of God will carry us? What is God calling us to do? And then this question, will we have the courage to do whatever it is we're being called to do? That is, what strikes me as much as anything is that the Antiochian congregation saw what the Spirit was doing and then embraced that with courage and with grace. The observation is often made that the greatest threat to the church is not external to us, but internal to us. I say this in part because I think oftentimes people think that one of the threats to the church in Canada is immigration. That somehow we need to perhaps stop so much immigration, that too many people are coming to Canada. We're going to dilute our Christian identity and presence. Whoa, is that where we want to go? Or do we want to be and take delight in the fact that Canada is one of the most welcoming nations in the world? Could it be that this is actually of God? A year ago, I had the privilege to speak at Ottawa Chinese Alliance Church. Actually, it was in February, so just a little over a year ago. Ottawa Chinese Alliance Church. Before I got up to speak, they showed a video of half the congregation out at the Ottawa airport the day before. Saturday afternoon, they had all been out at the airport, and they were showing this video with great delight of this congregation standing, waiting, placards, everything, for two Syrian refugee families that were getting off of a flight. And this congregation welcomed them and helped them move into the city of, of Ottawa. And afterwards, I was talking to a woman, Chinese descent, but from Vietnam. So she grew up in Vietnam, but of Chinese descent. She said, I was part of the boat people. And a generation ago, it was me. And I'm so grateful that Canada welcomed me. And now, she said, I get to be part of doing it for another refugee that's coming. And I thought, you've got it. That is, rather than being protective of our space, let's welcome. And to see the ways in which God is calling us to lower the anxiety level and embrace the challenges and opportunities, the capacity that we have as the church in Canada to both participate in what God is doing through the changing character of the epicenter of global, uh, the, through the global south, change the ways in which we, those of us called into pastoral ministry, are working side by side with those called into education, arts, and business. And indeed, within our own neighborhoods, to ask the question, what does it mean to work in the hospital when the person who's my colleague and now my friend, is Muslim or Hindu or Sikh. What does it mean to be Christian for such a time as this? And will God grant us the grace, courage, and wisdom to do it well? May it be so. Amen.